Welcome to the People vs. Inequality podcast. In a time of crisis and fast change, this podcast is a space to reflect and learn with changemakers on how to tackle inequality by diving into the choices they make and the approaches they take, but also the obstacles they face and their hopes and dreams in making real change happen. In this second season of the People vs. Inequality podcast, we focus on climate justice, asking the question, how can we get urgent climate action that is also just? Should we be taken to the streets or lobby the halls of power? And how to come together across movements to make sure all voices are heard? My name is Barbara van Passen, and I'm very excited to announce our guest for today, who is someone I have long admired for her important work with indigenous peoples. Victoria Tauli Corpus is from the Kankanai Igorot peoples of the Cordillera region in the Philippines. She helped build the indigenous movement to successfully stand up against dictatorship and large damaging infrastructure projects. She was the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and is now back at her Tapteba Foundation. We ask her what climate justice means from an indigenous perspective and what we can learn from struggles of the past. As someone who knows the system inside out, I'm sure she has a lot to say on turning urgent needs into tangible results. This and more in today's episode of the People vs. Inequality podcast. So please grab a coffee or tea and listen in on the conversation. So welcome, Victoria. Or Thank Vicky. you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for making the time and joining us today. Very happy to have you here. And I realized recently how many of the women that I admire for their social justice work mm. are actually from the Philippines. <laughs> Only a few weeks ago, I watched the speech of the journalist Nobel Prize winner. Uh, uh, Maria Reza. Yes. And I, I just wanted to check in with you. Is it a coincidence that I see so many <laughs> women standing up uh, from your well, region? Yeah, in the Philippines. Yeah, I think it's largely because women have really been part of the, you know, we have asserted ourselves. Many women are very assertive in the Philippines. And so we have asserted ourselves and really pushed the issue of, for instance, women's participation should really be addressed by the movements. You know, for some time, I mean, the Philippines is a very patriarchal country, society, but I think the women have done their job in terms of really asserting and claiming their right to be equal participants in the movements. You have a long history of mobilizing and advocacy for the rights of indigenous peoples. And this is, of course, a major issue and challenge within the climate justice and space. And before we dive into that particular topic, I'm just curious if you can say something about how and why you got engaged at the time in the struggles and in the movements Mm -hmm. and how that maybe still feeds your work today. I was born and raised in my own community. When I was still in the elementary school, I passed a test, you know, a scholarship exam for a national exam, which brought me to Manila. And this was in the late 60s to the 70s. That was the height of the student power movement, you know. And so we were engaged in protesting against the Vietnam War, you know, understanding what Uh, colonialism or imperialism is all about. And that caught my imagination. I became active with various uh, organizations. And then I I realized that actually uh, indigenous peoples are not really being addressed as much as I would like. So I engaged and I got engaged in organizing uh, indigenous, the Igorot students in Manila. 
and then uh, history move on dictate anti-dictatorship struggle came we organized groups which became illegal and we had to operate underground and so that's how i got involved with this whole thing at the same time we suddenly realized that in our region in the cordillera the marcos government the dictatorship had projects which they never consulted us with no the dam hydroelectric dam project he gave uh, parts of our forest to his crony and so we organize our communities really organizing students as well as the communities to protest against the wrong things that are being done against us and eventually we learn about the UN that there is such a thing as the human rights declaration you know and it affirmed our positions that we should be consulted we should be involved that nobody can just come and put something in our communities without asking us you know so that's that was the beginning Thank you for sharing that. It's really uh, interesting to hear how you basically started out in the streets, sort of protesting yes. <laughs> uh, because because of the injustice that you saw also done to your people mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. to the society at large. Then you went back to the community, and I think you did a long, mm-hmm. yeah, important mm-hmm. work there. Mm-hmm. And then you discovered the UN, which must have been a an important moment in your life because it it shaped so much of your career moving forward yeah. as well. Yeah, well, at, at least in the UN, I mean, because I became part of the process in developing, uh, at, at negotiating and drafting the Declaration, UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which, of course, is a response to all the complaints and cries that Indigenous peoples brought before the attention of the UN. And that, for me, was a very very meaningful experience because uh, you, then you realize that there are these arenas where you can really develop norms or standards that can protect the rights of indigenous peoples no of course i've been involved very much with the women's movement as well no and uh, i i became part of the national uh, women's organizations in the philippines but at some point i decided that uh, not many people are engaged in building the indigenous peoples movements no both locally and nationally as well as uh, at the regional level so i decided to uh, devote most of my time and most of the institutions that i help set up are institutions that are uh, devoted to women to you know to strengthening the the advocacy enhancing the capacities of indigenous peoples this show is all about fighting inequality and uh, mm-hmm. this series is all about getting justice into climate action mm-hmm. could you say a little mm-hmm. bit more about what climate justice would look like from mm-hmm. the perspective of mm-hmm. indigenous peoples but also of an indigenous woman the climate change impacts on our communities uh, both here and outside of our uh, of the country in other parts of the world are really very serious you know because many of us uh, live in very f- fragile uh, ecosystems where like us we live in very high mountains you know other are are living in low lying islands or in the arctic the impacts that they face are are magnified to a certain degree no compared to maybe the others and but the other issue is that we have maintained a lot of the biodiversity our ecosystems are in a much better shape compared to you know to the to the say national parks that the government have set up for instance and yet our traditional systems of managing our our environment our ecosystems are not supported the government comes with programs which are culturally inappropriate for us and and that's the same case with climate change you know to preserve the forests so that the forest will be able to sequester uh, carbon but they don't talk to us 
you know, and they were the ones who destroyed our forest in the first place. So that injustice, that kind of injustice has been happening for a long time. We have been fighting against mining companies that are uh, found in our communities. Of course, our friends in, in North America and Canada have been fighting against pipelines. And in these kinds of struggles, they are usually criminalized, you know, illegal, false charges are filed against them, and they find themselves in jail. So that kind of injustice tells me that there's a deeper problem, which is, of course, racism and uh, discrimination, you know, and that is what uh, really has brought about these kinds of policies and programs of government that totally disregard our systems, our governance systems, our uh, ecosystem management systems, and impose, you know, the systems that they have developed, which are not the ones that we would like to see. So I think that's the kind of injustice that we have seen in the climate change discussions when the governments or the, even the corporations come into our communities to put some projects under the name of uh, climate change solutions. And we should be the ones making the main decisions on how our territories are going to be to contribute to solving this global crisis. So for us to be able to do that, of course, we have to enhance our capacities, understand exactly what, is, what are being decided on, what are the issues that are being addressed, and putting our perspectives and our, our recommendations on how this will be relevant and culturally appropriate for us. Thank you so much for laying out so well what it means to think about climate justice uh, from an indigenous perspective and also what it takes to get there. What are some of the steps mm -hmm. to get there? And mm -hmm. I think it's always important that, I mean, as climate change threatens all of us, mm -hmm. it is not in the same way. And it's, and it's mm -hmm. so existential when you mm -hmm. try to understand the way that indigenous peoples have long lived and, and worked and maintained and, and have been custodians also of of these mm -hmm. precious places that are mm. so much at risk. We're going to dive in a little bit into the how of getting that seat at the mm. table, of being heard, of getting mm -hmm. the right to consent, um, mm -hmm. and ultimately getting action that is really also just for, for mm -hmm. everyone, including Indigenous mm -hmm. peoples. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you, mm. in your daily work um, mm. with the Teptaba Foundation, mm -hmm. but maybe also other avenues, mm -hmm. are trying to make this change happen? Yes. First of all, our starting point is that we haven't really contributed much to this problem and we are but we are facing the worst impacts and we are we have solutions that we think can be uh, used to address this problem. So that's our starting point to work with our partners to be able to train, you know, uh, the leaders as well as the new generation of leaders on what is this issue about climate change. We develop training materials, we have videos, you know, which will explain what this issue is all about. And then we train them on how to engage with the government and also the private sector so that they will be able to contribute to the discussions and be included in the discussions that are in the decisions that are being made. Then we all bring them also to the arenas where they can speak out. And we do a lot of research as well so that we will be able to document like uh, what are their natural uh, resource management systems and uh, share this more widely. You know? So because we have to show the proof that we are 
that indeed we have we are doing the you know the things that need to be done we do some mapping we train our communities and our communities get engaged in mapping their territories to understand you know how well kept our, are their forests or their other ecosystems and then train them to monitor are there changes for the better or for for the worse and what kinds of programs can you develop so that you can be you can influence you can uh, persist in making this ecosystem systems more capable in terms of addressing climate change problems. So that whole package of training, you know, awareness raising of uh, doing documentation and research, and of course of uh, advocacy engaging, you know, with the relevant bodies. That's the kind of work that we do. And then we join campaigns. We participate. We support the campaigns of indigenous peoples, like when they are campaigning against mining. For instance, no, in the past, the binding of the, the usual minerals like gold or silver. But now we are seeing that many indigenous territories are also containing the rare but metals, you know, which includes lithium that is very much used in renewable energy. And we want to make sure that the indigenous peoples know about this. But uh, the other thing that also we are campaigning against is to really push the main polluters, you know, to do what they need to do and not to put the burden on us. You know, the this oil, you know, oil producing countries, the oil companies, you know, they are the ones who are doing, the, uh, you know, contributing the most to climate change. And yet they find ways and means to sort of shift the burden away. So they, of course, the voluntary carbon market is one way of doing that where they can buy carbon credits you know from our territories and then use that as part of their uh, of their contributions in solving yeah. the problem and we don't believe that that should be the main approach because that it really should be addressed where it where the problem lies not where by buying credits no yeah. so those yeah. are the kinds of campaigns that we also engage with and the discussions that we hold with the convention, when they talk about the voluntary carbon market, we discussed with them, is this really the solution that's needed? Yeah, and that's so important to be vigilant on what are the mm. solutions that are put forward and are they mm. actual solutions or mm. are they rather solutions that indeed put the burden on those that have already least contributed. And I think very important at this particular moment, and mm. we saw at the last COP that the discussion on carbon markets uh, is going into directions that could be very dangerous from mm-hmm. a climate justice, climate change and a climate exactly. justice perspective, right? So can you say a yes. little bit more about what how you worked? We're speaking now almost two months after COP. Mm. Can you say a little bit about how you tried to get your perspectives heard when you were mm-hmm. there and mm-hmm. uh, what you managed to... I mean, I know some mm-hmm. amazing achievements have been mm-hmm. made at this mm-hmm. COP with a with a Mm -hmm. massive fund of Mm 1.7 billion. And at the same Mm -hmm. time, I think you came out rather disappointed in many ways as Mm -hmm. well. Even before that uh, that money was being discussed, I have been engaged in discussions with those who are proposing this to increase the money that will be devoted to forests. Uh, and many of these forests, of course, are indigenous people's territories. And I stressed very strongly, even from the start, that the human rights of indigenous people should really be an integral part of using these funds. You know, you cannot just uh, put funds and not 
ensure that human rights of indigenous peoples will not be violated when these funds are being used and that there should be a more direct access of indigenous peoples to these funds because we know that there are funds that are out there, but hardly anything goes to indigenous peoples' uh, communities no, directly because, of course, they say that we are not capable of absorbing these kinds of money, etc. We also have been having uh, discussions amongst ourselves on, you know, when they say nature-based solutions. What are these? Are these going to respect the solutions that indigenous peoples already are doing and reinforce these? Or they are going to just use the term and greenwash whatever it is that they are doing. So we are very conscious about the way that they will interpret and implement these uh, ideas and concepts. And the basic line for us is that we should be there. We should be included. We should have our consent should be obtained whenever these programs are brought to our territories and that we will be able to decide yeah, absolutely. And the fact that there is this this money now allocated, some initial victories of of the long-standing work that you and many others have been doing, is that also how you see it? I mean, I saw that Nature, for example, mentioned you as one of the 10 most influential people on science in the past year, uh, exactly around this, this narrative mm-hmm. of, of indigenous mm-hmm. peoples being the, the custodians of the forests. Can you say something about what you have achieved and and how you think mm-hmm. what has been particularly important in achieving that in terms of strategies and tactics yeah been- well some of the things that i think we have achieved is number one when you know when the red discussions were being where negotiations were happening we were able to convince the negotiators to have the cancun safeguards no on the implementation of red plus which is uh, that they should respect the un declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples and that free prior informed consent should be obtained among others. No? So at least we have those in place and we have been monitoring some of the implementation of some Red Plus projects. And in some countries, they managed, the indigenous peoples managed to use this to push the governments to create laws or policies that uh, recognize indigenous peoples' rights to these forests. No? The creation, the establishment of the local communities and indigenous people's platform on indigenous knowledge, no? traditional knowledge. Uh, I think this is a success because at least uh, there will be, uh, there's a space in the UN, the Climate Change Convention, where indigenous people's views and practices are also being discussed and mm-hmm. how this can be integrated into the climate change package that governments and UN agencies are going to implement. The other thing is our, I think one of the things that we also achieve is the whole issue of conservation. No, We both engage with the Biodiversity Convention as well as the Climate Change Convention to expose you know, some of the violations of indigenous people's rights in areas which are conservation areas. And some of these issues have been raised. I mean, in, of course, I'm, I'm also talking in my role as the UN Special Rapporteur. No? I made a report specifically on uh, conservation and the impacts on indigenous peoples. I also made a report on climate change and impacts on indigenous peoples. And some of these reports were used in strengthening the arguments for the positions that indigenous peoples are taking. Yeah, no, No, these reports can be very powerful for civil society. I can can speak from uh, from own uh, experience (laughs) as well. And even one person in the last series of this podcast, not from an indigenous perspective, but more generally said that the special rapporteurs are kind of like the rock stars of many civil society activists because their role is really important. 
the community empowerment process for me is some of the most uh, important successes that we have where we yeah. manage to get indigenous leaders to speak up and to really play key roles in their own communities as well as well as at the national level yeah that's so important and that's also really that long term work that's not done in a day i think it's interesting how you know, so much of this work around climate justice has this very long-term component of building people's awareness, but also rights and the international processes that support that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's this real urgency and obviously rightfully so both indigenous people, but also young people are very impatient to get real solutions on the table, right? How do you see this this tension between the urgent needs Mm -hmm. and and the long-term efforts Mm -hmm. moving forward also in the way Mm -hmm. that movements and civil society work together and, and maybe mm. strategize around this. Exactly. I think that when uh, indigenous peoples are engaging in campaigns against uh, projects that destroy their communities, projects that uh, actually displace them from their communities or even uh, result to some assassinations, I think that's really urgent. No, And we, we work closely with various uh, civil society, human rights organizations. We work with, uh, of course, the UN, you know, the special rapporteurs, whenever such cases come into the picture. no, And we try to support also the indigenous peoples if they need to go on sanctuaries no, to, to protect mm-hmm. themselves as well as when they need to file uh, some cases before the courts no, to, yeah. to address these uh, issues. We speak up uh, strongly. For instance, in the Philippines, you know, COVID, when COVID came in, uh, there was this big mining company whose license has expired, but they still want to continue mining in one of the communities uh, in our uh, region. And the people barricaded. They they wanted to stop the entry of the mining company. And then some of them were arrested because they were accused as uh, going against the COVID rules. Mm-hmm. What we really need is also enhanced communications no, between ourselves, of course, and the communities which we are working with and our partners, sharing of campaigns with the other movements, no, whether these are the women's movements or the youth movements. no, And uh, in the UN, even at the level of the convention, we cooperate. You know, There are some meetings held between the women's caucuses or the, the youth caucuses. And we, ha- we also send our women and our youth in those caucuses. No? So that's one way of making sure that we are enhancing and reinforcing each other, uh, complementing each other's uh, strengths and uh, strengthening our voices altogether. And the other we thing that we do is, of course, the dialogues with the government. You know, I think that we really need to strengthen, give our people confidence that they should be engaging in constructive dialogues with the government. And I also tell the government that you know you have nothing to lose if you continue to if you continue to ignore indigenous peoples and violate their rights. At the end, you know, uh, what nation building are you talking about? We are part of the nation. We contribute very much to what the nation is all about, and yet you don't uh, engage into a dialogue with them. So you have laws that are put in place that will respect the rights and mechanisms that will allow for those kinds of dialogues. So in the Philippines, we have, in fact, in this COVID period, we have engaged the government in dialogues through Zoom. No, mm. We're able to get the attention of uh, and the participation of many governments from the national level down to the local level to engage mm. in dialogues. And the indigenous peoples are able to 
express their problems. And in fact, some of the result is like one of our partners. They finally got their certificate of ancestral domain title. With these dialogues, at least the people are directly going to them to talk to them. So I think that's the way to, to do it, to really create that kind of space where such dialogues can be done and strengthening the capacity and confidence of indigenous people to be able to do it. It's really crucial that the people who are experiencing this are the ones speaking out because when they speak, of course, they become more visible and the credibility and legitimacy is uh, higher than us speaking for them. So I think that's something that we always, as a practice, that's what we do. And that's where I find a lot of fulfillment because you see that these people are finally there, they're speaking, they're understanding dynamics of these processes, which sometimes they think is very remote from them. You mentioned some of the really hopeful stuff that's been happening Mm -hmm. also in terms of dialogue with government. But of course, there are massive obstacles still in getting to the change we need to get to. And could you Mm. say something about what you see as the biggest obstacles at this moment Mm. in moving forward Mm. and maybe Mm. some of the ways in which you are Mm. trying to address them or in which Mm. you would like Mm. to see others working Mm -hmm. on this? Well, I think one of the biggest obstacles is really this whole obsession with with economic growth that the most important thing for a country or for a politician is to ensure that the country is going to grow economically and then this will go down to the ones who are poor, which is not happening in a lot. I mean, in most cases, it's not happening. I mean, what we're seeing now is more and more billionaires and more poor people are coming into the picture, you know. So I think that's really the biggest obstacle. How do you change, you know, the way that governments and private sector are doing their own business in terms of using, you know, resources, the natural resources in in the world are, you know, disturbing the ecosystems and not really doing what they need to do to be able to solve this crisis that we all face. The imposition of this kind of uh, economic growth, endless profit development kind of model is, I think, what we need to address. I think we really need to think more about what are the alternatives that we can put in place, you know, that can really change the picture that we are facing right now. We have always been saying this about how do you factor in ecosystem services when you are uh, deciding, you know, in the project or the development model that you have. They don't do that. But slowly, maybe there are some governments now which are more conscious about how to do it in an alternative way, you know. And maybe there's, I don't know. I mean, we are in such desperate situation that I would like to believe that those who are in power they themselves are in trouble as well. And therefore, it's the natural uh, you know, path to take is to work together with the people who are campaigning or directly affected and designing together what is the kind of a, a society that mm. we would like to see and that we would like to leave behind. And for indigenous peoples, that's what we are all about. You know, we're always thinking about what our future generations are going to find. And that's precisely what's prodding us to do all the things that we are doing now. And maybe I believe that many people believe in that also, that they wouldn't like to destroy, you know, the so planet too. because it's not, you know, it's, it's not just us going to be affected. It's all of us. Yeah. And and that kind of thinking and philosophy really needs to be internalized, yeah. especially the ones who are making these decisions, no? the politicians, the business sector, 
that's part of our task. I'm very keen on enhancing these kinds of uh, constructive dialogues because if we are not able to do that, then people will just go on with business as usual no? yeah. until we find ourselves in a, in a situation where we, we only have regrets. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for painting that picture of hope. And uh, I hope with you that we are in a situation in which also decision makers realize that we need to find solutions and alternatives to the models at play. You mentioned already the importance of dialogue. That's really something that I think a role that you are playing. Of course, we have the movements also in the streets, really pushing the debate forward, putting the pressure on governments. What do you see as a strategic question moving forward for those on the inside, those on the outside Mm -mm. to come together Mm -mm. or not Mm -hmm. and push this agenda? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that uh, there should really be two tracks always, you know, working in the inside and working on the outside, you know. And I've seen that work in many instances, (laughs) no, where uh, even, for instance, when we had these red uh, negotiations in the climate change, we had people who were rallying outside, you know, saying no, no rights, no red, you know, and that strengthens the position of those who are working inside, because, of course, that kind of voice has to really be heard. But we need to work inside because that's where the decisions are being made. And if you don't have some uh, language in the decisions that really echoes what we are asking for, then we haven't gone very far. Hmm. No. So I believe in that kind of approach. In fact, for a time, I became a member of the government delegation of the Philippines, you know, during the red process. That's why when I was there, I was actually co-chairing the red subworking group, Hmm. you know, and that's how I managed to convince some of my of the governments to agree. I remember there was this debate. One government said, why don't we have to talk about rights here? You know, we have sovereignty as governments, et cetera, et cetera. We decide what should be done with the territories, et cetera, et cetera. then, and then, of course, I had to, to say that, you know, and when why if you are torturing somebody because they are protesting against a forest being destroyed, is that a sovereignty? You know, is that, a, mm. you know, in the end, all of them became my friends. And of course, we get the Cancun safeguards in place. Wow. You know, I think that's the way to be relevant and more sophisticated. You know, we really have to be sophisticated in terms of the arenas that we are engaging with. Because if we are just one track mind, we think that uh, just the protests outside, you know, uh, criticizing and uh, throwing eggs is what is working. It does. It's not like that. The world is not like that. You know, we criticize and I support fully the kind of uh, campaigns that are really very much, uh, you know, exposing these wrongs. But we also need to have people inside who will understand us or ourselves who will be there, who will put in place the kind of decisions that we will be using to further strengthen our demands. To see the balance, we have to do both. Yeah, and some people are better at doing one than the other. And that's also great, right? People have their roles within the movement. Thank you for painting that so well. And, I'm and the creativity, you know, our creativity mm. as uh, as activists come into play, you know, because we do try to understand better the terrain and then we try to do whatever we can to be able to influence all those different uh, terrains which we are uh, pushing to bring about the changes that we like. I believe movements understand that very well, no? 
Otherwise, we don't have all these conventions that we have in the UN. And if the human rights conventions, those are results of the work of uh, activists who are very much concerned about the violation of these rights, you know. Yeah, that's an important reminder of the impact (laughs) that movements can make. And that brings me to my final question, actually. What is is the thing that gives you most hope at the moment Mm -hmm. when you look at at the movement and the ambition of really Mm -hmm. achieving climate justice? Mm -hmm. What gives me hope, I think, is when communities are empowered and people are more self-governing. No, I have seen indigenous uh, communities where the indigenous governance systems are the ones that are in place. And these people, the governance systems, are the ones who are really developing, you know, programs and policies that will protect the ecosystem as well as that will protect their rights and enhance their contributions. I'm just imagining that if there are more communities who are strengthened and are able to assert you know, that uh, they will be the ones making the decisions and they also put themselves in, you know, in governance positions so they will bring themselves the, the, these kinds of ideals and dreams, you know, into the decision-making processes. Then there will be hope. In Mexico, I went to, when I was a rapporteur, I went to a place where they have this indigenous governance system in Mechocan, you know, and the indigenous peoples, they decided they are so sick and tired of the lagging happening in their forest, you know, and this is being done by the drug cartels. So the women got so fed up with this and they decided they will barricade these trucks that are coming out from their forest carrying their lugs and they barricaded and they decided that they will go and kick out the officials of the municipal government because they are the ones colluding with these luggers and they did and then they created their own government. You know, they put wow. their own people and then when the uh, Mexican government questioned them saying that they violated the law. The case was brought to the Supreme Court. The These Puripecha people in Mechocan, they, they fought, fought back and then they, they said, no, you have, in our constitution, we have a provision that says that indigenous governance should be respected. And they won the case. So yeah. for me, this is the kind of community that more and more communities of this kind should be supported. I hope that eventually we will really have good people in decision-making processes. That's the other thing. I think that the problem with our political system now is that nobody wants to become a politician because, you know, <laughs> and I think that we have to rethink that now. Mm. You know, maybe mm. there is a, a value in strengthening the communities, letting them make their, uh, be, becoming the decision-makers and eventually occupying those political positions. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, unless we change that whole that this political system where, where you know people are just there to get what can enrich themselves and make themselves more powerful we will really never change this kind of system so that's where my hope lies i know it will be beyond after i die i will there it, it will still be a lot of work but what else to do <laughs> Exactly. Let's keep the work going. And thank you so much for sharing that hopeful story at the end. Um, I fully agree. If only we had more communities like that. I mean, that is kind of the the combination of ecosystems and rights is really where the climate justice is. So um, thank you so much, Vicky, for sharing your long experience organizing with Indigenous peoples, which is so important to the challenges of today. Thank you also for reminding us of the successes achieved and the long-term, sometimes nitty-gritty work that entails. Thank you, listeners, for joining today's episode. I take away a lot from Vicky's story. 
There's so much to learn from and build on as we push for climate justice. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, leave a review and spread the word so more people can join. Check out the resources in the show notes. And of course, watch this space for more inspiring episodes coming up. Ciao.